Hi there, this is Brian Barnett with The Last Symptom. When I started The Last Symptom, I never in a million years imagined it would grow as it has. In these early shows especially, audio quality was often iffy, and there were references to services or online groups that are outdated and no longer in use. Great improvements have been made. Where should you go for all of the most up-to-date resources that I offer? TheLastSymptom.com is my permanent website full of free resources where everything is always up to date and that I encourage you to refer back to often. There are also a few modest paid resources at TheLastSymptom.com. These support my efforts and have allowed The Last Symptom to exist for as long as it has. These include one-on-one phone conversations with me one-on-one Zoom video calls with me, and perhaps most importantly, the Last Symptom Fundamentals course, which is a two-week, intensive, pre-recorded online video course that is far superior to things like DBT. The Last Symptom has a flourishing YouTube and Rumble channel where I publish regular orange slices, which are condensed video insights of five or ten minutes in length. If you're just now discovering the last symptom, welcome. I hope you will find every insight and resource you need here for authentic and permanent recovery from emotional disorders such as borderline personality disorder. Now on to the show. Brian Barnett is just a regular guy. He's not a doctor. He has no legal license in any field of mental or emotional health. Brian Barnett merely shares the insights he's gained from his personal experiences for anybody who may choose to use such information as he or she personally chooses, while accepting full responsibility for his or her own individual thoughts, feelings, behaviors, and actions. Brian Barnett assumes no responsibility whatsoever for anybody's individual choice to expose himself or herself to any information that Brian Barnett shares. And by listening to this program, you're acknowledging that you, and only you, are responsible for your own thoughts, feelings, and actions. I figured Jens might like to know what life has been like for me, personally, since my recovery. Bear in mind that when I talk about recovery, I'm not using the term in the fraudulent way that the professional community you you know, as a group, uses the term to mean perpetual, never-ending coping strategies and soothing techniques. You know, somebody who is living that way is as recovered as a man with the flu is recovered when he takes a Tylenol and and his fever superficially comes down for a few hours. So no, when I use the term recovery, I'm referring to genuine recovery. A person has the disorder, And when they approach the disorder and examine themselves in an authentic, open, sincere way, and at the same time they gain an accurate education about all the things that that are in play and involved there, this makes them able to dismantle the cause at the root of it all. And then they walk away from it forever, as if it were never there. The seeds from which the disorder grew are no longer there. 
When I was a teenager, I got two large warts. They say if you pick up a toad, that the toad can give you warts. It's baloney. But that's what they say. I got two large warts when I was a teenager. One was in my palm, the palm of my right hand, and the other was on the side of one of my fingers of my right hand. Since at the time I was feverishly in love with cartooning, this was really uncomfortable for me because it interfered with the way I held my pencils. So one day I had enough. I pulled my Swiss Army knife from my pocket. And this is the knife I'd been carrying all through grade school and, and high school. you got to remember those were different times back then, and uh, I didn't exactly grow up in New York City. So I always carried a pocket knife. I still always carry a pocket knife in my pocket. But I took my Swiss Army knife out of my pocket, and I began digging into my warts with the tip of my knife blade. And when I reached the quick, it got, it got good and painful. So I'd dig around for a while, and then I'd wait. I'd let the pain subside. Then I'd clean away some of the blood, and I'd start digging around again. I should mention that this was the second time I had attempted this. The first time, I only cut the wart down level with the surface of my finger. And then I stopped. I, I cut away the growth. I said, all right, that's good. But then, after a few weeks, the warts grew back again. So this time, I was determined to get to the literal bottom of things. I was probably thir between 13 to 15 years old at, the, at this time. What was I looking for? What did I expect to find? To be honest with you, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know what I was expecting. I only knew that I had to get to the bottom of what was causing these warts. They, they were driving me crazy. They were interfering with the thing that defined my life in that period of time, which was drawing and art. And the first time when I'd cut them off and they'd grown back, I said, that's not going to happen this time. This time I am, I'm going all out. So it seemed reasonable that I'd have to get to the bottom of them and see what was down there, see what was inside, do some real digging around and find out what was out of place. Well, would you like to know what I found? What I found were tiny, round, hard seeds deep down within the growth. I'm calling them seeds, but they were probably small calcium deposits or something like that. And I could do an internet search and probably find out specifically what they were, but to be honest, I don't care. What I found was a seed in each of the two warts, buried deep in my palm and buried deep in the side of my finger. So no matter what I would have done, short of digging those seeds out with a knife, the warts were destined to just keep coming back. No matter how much effort and pain I went through to rid myself of the warts, until I got those seeds out of there, they were always going to keep coming back. But because I finally got to the root cause of what was causing the warts, and because I was able to dig those seeds out with my knife, the warts healed and vanished after that. 
I've never dealt with them since. So some of you are wriggling around in horror over my description here. Yes, it was painful for me. And it was inconvenient for me. And I would have rather not have had to do it at all. But do you know what would have been more painful? It would have been more painful to just live with the warts. Or to just cut them off every three months. Genuine recovery from an emotional disorder means some emotionally painful work. I, I know it does. But do you really want to go halfway and stop? Superficially learn some ways to soothe your symptoms, but have to deal with it for the rest of your life? Come back every few months and go through the pain of cutting warts off for the rest of your life? You see, there's a seed buried underneath everything you're dealing with, which are the two primary distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder, which I've defined for you in other episodes many, many times, as well as a few other misunderstood principles necessary for emotional health. You're going to have to deconstruct a few other misconceptions you have at the same time. It, it, those things, are they're not big, so don't sweat over it. Because if we can reach the seeds and we can dig them out, You'll never need me or anybody else again. In fact, every time I see on my education group that I've lost a member, I feel happy. They may have left for a myriad of reasons, but the possibility I like to imagine the most often is that they simply got what they needed and then they didn't need me anymore. So once I myself had dug out the seeds of these warts with my knife, I knew I had discovered their cause and that I had fixed the problem. I, I knew it. The, the instant that I got down in there under the skin and I pulled out that little hard calcium deposit or whatever it was, as soon as I found that, I said, uh, these warts aren't going to come back. They're not coming back. This has been the cause of it all. I didn't have to be a scientist to know this. I wasn't any older than 14. So I wrapped my hand with a paper towel and some duct tape and I waited. And what happened? The warts, just like a callus on a part of your hand, which is not used for a while, will gradually fade away and disappear. If you're a guitarist, if you play a musical instrument, especially a stringed instrument, you know how this works. I play the guitar for about uh, three weeks feverishly. Then I put it aside and I forget about it for a couple weeks. And when I go back to play the guitar, it's really kind of rough on my fingers because my calluses, the calluses on my fingertips have faded. So would you like to know what my experience was like observing the disappearance of some of the warts, some of the warts or symptoms of borderline personality disorder? I'd be happy to share them with you. There have been so many changes that there's no way I can detail all of them for you but I'd like to handpick a few and tell you about them. Probably the most dramatic change was with rage. And as I described once before, I used to deal with unhealthy rage and unhealthy, illogical frustration, which often manifested in the form of road rage. Frankly, I am fortunate to still be alive. The rage that I experienced was not just road rage at other drivers, but it was rage while driving. You see, the cab of a car or a truck is pretty small. It's a, it's a small, confined space. 
So if you get into an argument with somebody there, it's, it's not like you can just go into another room to cool off or take a walk around the neighborhood and compose yourself. No, you're stuck in this confined space. And for a person who has no control, this is a recipe for disaster. I'll tell you right now that I take no pleasure whatsoever in admitting to you that there were times while I was driving prior to my awareness of having borderline personality disorder and then even after my awareness, but before my recovery, when I'd get so overtaken by rage that I would fantasize about crashing the vehicle into a telephone pole just to end an argument. But I think it's important to share it honestly because um, the reality is that many of you listening to this are responsible for thinking the same sorts of things secretly. This rage was a poison that had been passed down to me by my dad. It was something that I had fought against all my life, but that I always lost to. I believed it was woven into my DNA. I assumed it was something that was just simply an inherent part of me that I'd be apologizing to others for for the rest of my life. For 35 years, from my perspective, this uncontrollable anger and rage was as much a part of me as the color of my eyes. I was burdened by the certainty that no matter how hard I tried, I'd never be rid of it. The best I hoped for was to be able to control it. Just like how so many of you feel now about the similar, this similar issue, I once felt like that. I had lived my whole life feeling that way. What about after recovery? Well, I can tell you it has now been years since I have experienced that rage. What I once thought was impossible, could only imagine as a fantasy future, is now a normal aspect of my life. This dramatic change happened once I dug at the seeds of borderline personality disorder with the tip of my pocket knife. And then I bandaged the wound, and I went on with life. Gradually, the wound faded and healed, and then that rage, it just simply was not there anymore. Why do I say same type of rage from the same cause? Why, why is that important? Because if I told you that I have not experienced rage at all, since I recovered from borderline personality disorder, I'd be lying. And I'd be painting a false picture for you of what life absent the disorder looks like. Rage serves a legitimate purpose. It's an emotion. And with the exception of shame, there's an appropriate time and circumstance for all emotions. Also, I'm still an imperfect person. So there are times when I make mistakes in judgment or I jump to conclusion, uh, conclusions without all the facts. But this is vastly different than the type of rage I'm talking about and that you know I'm talking about, which is a product of borderline personality disorder. First of all, any feelings of rage I experience nowadays are so few and far between. It's such a rarity. Before recovery, it was every week and usually several times a week over ridiculous things. Now we're talking about an emotion that I might, I might experience once a year. Secondly, the rage used to grow stronger and stronger. And once it got started, my rational brain would flip off. The rage would last until I was physically exhausted. I remember that once I got revved up like that, 
I'd actually feel a state of euphoria. I would get euphoric and I'd take pleasure in the rage, almost like being high. Because I was high on this rage, I myself would keep it going. The rage I've experienced after recovery has been nothing at all like that. The rage I experience is now tempered. We're talking about something now that lasts minutes as opposed to hours. And my rational brain, rather than shutting off, steps in and takes control of the situation. That's not how it used to be for me. Rage used to take me over. I would destroy things. I'd physically lash out. I would say the the most repugnant things to hurt the other person. Terrible things. Terrible things that I, uh, I I regret so much. I would say things in my rage I did not truly believe, but that I knew would hurt the other person. I, I was just simply very good at zeroing in on what would be most painful for the other person and then using that as a weapon. All of you know what I'm talking about when you get into that zone because a person with an emotional disorder feels like they're fighting for their life every time they get into an argument and you say some terrible, terrible things. You know, I don't blame myself for what I was totally ignorant about, but now I understand it and I, and I do still regret it, the way that it caused me to behave. The disorder does, in fact, cause you to say things that you know that you do not f- truly feel or believe, but in your rage, you say them anyway. And that's what I mean when rage used to take me over. I would destroy things. I'd, I'd lash out. I would become an animal. Nowadays, with borderline personality disorder behind me, now I'm able to tell myself, yeah, there's no sense in kicking that wall or throwing that chair, or saying that hurtful thing that I don't even believe. I realize that for many of you, from your current perspectives, you're listening to this and you're imagining that I'm exerting some sort of superhuman control in order for the changes I've just described to be possible. You're imagining me just like a clenched hand or a tightened muscle, restraining that rage, restraining it in the ways that I've just described. I know this because I was once where you are, but the way you're imagining it is not accurate. I'm not clenching or tightening anything. I'm not restraining anything. There is no trick that I am consciously applying to situations nowadays to behave better than I used to. The changes are just a natural product of having cut the seed of that rage out. The seed I'm talking about in this case, of course, are the two distorted core beliefs of borderline personality disorder, along with a few other simple misconceptions about life. Now, I'm spending a lot of time on this because I know that so many other people deal with anger or rage and that you also feel this sort of exasperation that it'll always be that way. And there's nothing you'll ever be able to do, but that's just not true. It doesn't have to be that way. You're arriving at that surrender based on the failure of your superficial strategies that up until now you have tried and that have failed for you. Until now, you've just been cutting the wart away, but leaving that seed buried underneath the skin. Those erroneous foundation certainties that you have about the inherent nature, your feelings of self 
and of how this translates into all the expectations you walk around carrying, along with the frustration and the unrecognized pain that results from it all. That's where it's all coming from. What other dramatic changes have I noticed in myself since recovery? Well, a big one has been my genuine contentment with myself. And I'll include several different related examples or symptoms here. Prior to my recovery, I clearly remember, clearly remember, as clear as day, like it was yesterday, walking around tense with extreme stress, especially if I was going to go into a social situation. My, my entire body would go hours in a tensed up state. I'm talking about my muscles literally being tensed rock hard. The muscles in my stomach, my posture, this would result in a lot of sweating, especially under my arms. I was constantly looking for the most powerful deodorants I could find. I have 15 years now working in a professional field, so I'm often dressed in dress shirts and ties, often full dress suits. I could shower, put on deodorant, be clean and crisp, but because of the stress of heading to work, I would easily sweat through all my layers of clothes before I got to my destination. Now, I was always able to fake natural calmness very well, but it was fake. And anybody who knew what to look for would have been able to spot the tells that on the inside, I was anything but calm. My palms would sweat. My armpits would sweat something fierce. And I could not totally control the shaking in my left hand, my non-dominant hand. Incidentally, my mother's left hand shakes uncontrollably like this, as does my brother's, as does my grandpa's, or as did my grandpa's. He's, he's deceased. That shaking in my left hand has completely disappeared since my recovery. I don't sweat under my arms. I notice that I no longer superficially hold my stomach in, tense, in a tense state. Now, I do get nervous, don't get me wrong, but it's nothing at all like before recovery. The extent of it nowadays is that I feel a bit of fluttering in my gut, like some butterflies, and that's about the extent of it. Another thing related to genuine self-contentment is that prior to my recovery, I had such a distorted view of myself that my physical appearance was a constant, unhealthy, overpowering concern. My physical appearance was, was on my mind consciously and subconsciously always. There was never a moment in any social situation that I was not thinking about it. What this meant was a hundred trips to the bathroom to make sure that my hair looked okay. It meant extreme unhealthy diets and exercise. It meant that a single zit, a single zit on my chin could make me cancel plans that I had made with friends months in advance. In fact, a single zit could literally make me wish I had never been born. Since recovery, my physical looks are something I, I still care about, but only in a very, very subtle way. It, you know, my physical looks are something I care about in context, in reasonable context. I'm not compelled to look like a movie star. And I used to be. That compulsion is just, it just, it's just gone. My concerns about 
the shape I'm in and my looks now have more to do with my actual health and taking care of myself than any concern whatsoever about what other people may or may, may not think. This is a big one. Because you see, prior to recovery, my value was measured. My personal value was measured by the feedback and the opinions of others. My value depended on others seeing me as good looking, and not just good looking, but extraordinarily good looking. When I was younger, I felt like an ugly duckling. When I was uh, 17 or 18 and working as a carpenter's assistant in the summer, I was working outside a lot. You know, I was working a lot with my hands. Um, I got tanned by the sun, and the work got me into excellent shape. And it was around that time that I began to notice attention from women. I began to notice it because it was overwhelmingly, I mean, it was impossible to ignore. (laughs) I was 17 or 18, and uh, I began noticing attention from women, from left and right. And it was around this time that a couple women told me that I was the most gorgeous man they had ever seen. Well, you know, even now, I'll never complain about compliments like that. It's a great feeling. But a side effect from that experience is that those women set the bar extremely high in my subconscious mind. Suddenly, anything less than the best looking ever was perceived by me as a failure. You see what I'm saying? If I was just attractive, that's good, right? But if you start off as being the most attractive guy who has ever lived, and now suddenly you're only attractive, my golly, you're, you're falling apart. You're letting yourself go. You see how unbalanced that is? So it was an all-consuming compulsion on my part to remain looking as unusually attractive as I possibly can muster because anything less meant the decay of my worth as a human being. Do you see how unhealthy that is? I ask because, again, I know that a lot of people here in this and they're looking inward and perhaps they're realizing for the first time that they also are a slave, a slave to this type of thinking. So after recovery now, I just don't care. <laughs> I honestly don't care. I'm so comfortable in my own skin. I don't need anybody else's adoration. Now, when I get it, I do enjoy it. It's flattering. It makes me feel good. But this is just the cherry on top of life. I have my dignity and self-respect. And I provide it, not anybody else. And because I have my dignity and my self-respect, for that reason, I enjoy making myself look reasonably well and attractive. Looking the best I reasonably can without without going to extremes. I'll tell you one thing that goes through my mind when I think about working out or dieting. What is my goal here? Do I want to have a visible six-pack? Why? Why do I want to have a six-pack? Is it going to help me in any of the things that I need to do? I'm not preparing for a movie role. So why? Why do I need a a six-pack? Because women like it? Okay. 
but how many are actually going to see it? <laughs> and will just as many people like me if I don't have a six-pack? Will I like myself if I don't have a six-pack? Yeah, I will. And so will plenty of other people. Plenty of other people will still like me and will still think I'm sexy, and they're going to be just fine with me. And then I also think about the work and the dedication and the focus that is involved in achieving something like a visible six-pack. For, for those of you who are not uh, American or, uh, you know, English is not your first language. When I'm talking about a six-pack, I'm talking about your abs, the muscles in your stomach. All right, we call that in American English, we call that a six-pack. Because when you buy beer or you buy uh, pop, you know, sometimes it comes in a, in a six pack. So it, that's what your the, your ab muscles look like in your in your belly. Now, I'll, one of the things that I often think about is I think about the work and the dedication and the focus and the sacrifice that is involved in achieving and, and not just achieving, but maintaining something like that. And then I realistically evaluate if the effort is worth the returns. Is the effort that you're going to put into that worth the returns? In other words, are you going to get back more than you invested in it? That's smart, right? Nobody wants to put in more work than what they're going to get back for that work. So, in my current circumstances... The answer is usually no. Sorry, ladies. <laughs> Sorry, ladies. The answer is usually no. Now, the reason why I say a visible six-pack is because of this. Did you know that everybody is already walking around with a perfect six-pack? Some of you are like, no, this he can't be right. No, I'm, I'm right. You, right now, no matter who you are, you have a perfect six-pack. Crunches aren't going to make the muscles in your stomach more visible. So stop torturing yourself. Stop doing pointless crunches. Unless you just want strong stomach muscles because you think you're going to have to lift a car with your stomach in the future or something, don't do that to yourself. There's no point in it. The only reason the perfect ab muscles you already have aren't visible. I hate to tell you it's because they're just covered in a layer of fat. So congratulations, you're a normal person. You're a normal person. The secret to visible abs is not exercise. It's not crunches. You don't do crunches to make your abs visible. You do crunches to make your abs stronger. The secret to visible abs is a lean protein diet. That's all. You just have to be leaner. And what is required in being leaner? Not lifting weights, not doing crunches. It's eating less carbs and sugar and fat and eating more protein. Anybody who tells you different is lying to you. All right, what else? I had OCD before recovery and OCD disappeared afterward. The OCD I had didn't manifest with hand washing and Avoiding cracks on sidewalks. No, my OCD was extreme focus. Extreme focus on a thing non-constructively. 
So for example, I'd get a free Saturday and I'd go out into my my art studio and I'd do some creative work. I'd go out there to do some creative work, but instead I'd spend the entire day sorting files on my computer where I'd think, hey, I should play some music while, while I'm out here working. But as soon as I opened up my music library, I'd compulsively spend the next 12 hours, and I'm not exaggerating, 12 hours just sorting my music collection. What was going through my mind was, I, you know, I just have to do this once. I just have to do this once. And if I stop now in the middle, then uh, I'll never get this done. It'll be hanging over my head. Things like this used to drive my ex-wife absolutely bananas. Speaking about my ex-wife, this leads me into the last thing I'll mention on today's topic for this episode. Maybe we can do a, a part two in the future, since really the changes have been, they've really been so numerous that I could not possibly have enough time to describe every single one of these changes that I've experienced in detail. A drastic change has been in my general attitude from one of bitter, consistent negativity and complaining to overwhelming positivity and genuine overall contentment. The way that my ex-wife figures into this is that she had to deal with my negativity and my griping and my complaining constantly, bless her heart, when I moved to Philadelphia. I moved to Philly for her, by the way. And when I did, I did nothing but nitpick and complain about every single thing that is unique and lovely about Philly. As well as, of course, the things that aren't so great about Philly, such as having to pay to drive on the turnpike to go absolutely everywhere within a reasonable amount of time. Or, you know, the traffic. The traffic's nothing to ride home about. But there were just so many stupid, stupid things that I used to gripe and, and bitterly complain about. I did this from a place of extreme insecurity. You see, I had to tear down everything that made up my wife's life that was, that was not a natural part of my life experience. Because if I could get her to turn on it herself or to question it, you see... This was a victory for my self-worth. If I could get her to turn on it herself, then I was more valuable than that thing, whatever that thing was. So let me give you an example, a specific example of what I mean. One of the first things I noticed in Philly was that the news broadcasters from the local stations, you know, when you turn on the nightly news, they're a lot more superficial than what I'm used to. The local news that I was used to watching growing up was based in Huntington, West Virginia. And the people who make up that news team are very plain and down to earth. They don't call attention to themselves at all. And instead of seeming to view themselves as celebrities, they're, they're very humble people. They just seem to be one of the normal people in the community. In fact, they present themselves as exceedingly humble they could be your next door neighbor working in the garden. So the first thing uh, I'm greeted with after moving to Philadelphia are these extremely superficial sort of self-absorbed news presenters who seem to crave an unusual amount of attention. You know, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here by, by stating that as fact. That That's the way it really is. From my perspective, as an outsider coming in, 
They just they just appeared like ridiculous clowns. I just couldn't understand how anybody could take them seriously. The guy most famous for doing the weather in Philly, for example, his name is uh, Hurricane Schwartz. Hurricane Schwartz. Now, let that sink in for a second. The guy who does the weather <laughs> is Hurricane Schwartz. <laughs> ah, now, I'd never heard of anybody in my life changing their name to pre- present the weather forecast. <laughs> I never heard in my life somebody who went into a career presenting the weather, changing their name as if they were going to become, I don't know, uh, Michael Jackson or something in the future. To appear in Hollywood movies, sure. You know, Hollywood is a fictional industry dealing with fictional stories. But the weather forecast is not, the last time I checked, a fictional industry. Yet here's this fella who wears this ridiculous bow tie so that he'll stand out and have as recognizable an identity as possible. Who's taken on a name as if he's an actor appearing in movies. Hurricane Schwartz. In some ways, I still don't understand how the hardworking blue-collar people in Philadelphia embrace this sort of, this sort of grandstanding self-absorption. But... None of this is neither here nor there. I'm finally getting to the point of all this. Instead of recognizing that uh, all of the little cultural differences that I was being exposed to was a part of my wife's identity, because she was a Philly girl. You see, she hadn't been born where I was born. She was a Philly girl, born and raised. She had been born there and had lived her entire life there. And instead of me recognizing all these little things as being part of her cultural identity and of being things that were beloved to her. It's the same way that I like bluegrass music and eating fried green tomatoes and bonfires and guitars and and banjos. You know, the same thing that, that I adore about my culture. I was complaining and complaining and complaining and nitpicking and trying to convince my wife nonstop how stupid the things that she loved about her own life were. Why was I doing it? Insecurity. If I could get her to turn on those things that she loved, then I would feel better about myself. So this also is a tremendous, tremendous regret that I live with. You know, I'll never get to talk to her again. This is the next best thing I get to tell you. I get to help you uh, strive to achieve the same thing, to break free from this terrible disorder so that you don't do these sorts of things to anybody else. What a tremendous, tremendous regret that I beat her over the head negatively with her own culture. Eventually, while I was there, many things in Philly grew on me, and today I consider Philly my hometown, my adopted hometown. There are still lots of things about Philly that strike me as stupid. But here's the difference. I no longer feel threatened by any of those things. Nor do I any longer feel threatened by other people's inability, unwillingness, or just simply difference of opinion. That has been a major, major difference prior to recovery to now. 
post-recovery. People's opinions, I'm, I'm able to accept those as just, well, it just is what it is. And I can, I can value that. There are some things that I can't give into. For example, anything that has to do with uh, borderline personality disorder, its causes and its cure. You know, what, when I know something is just what is what it is, I can't say, well, all right, well, the sky is green. I agree with you. Can't do that. But in matters of opinion, in things of relativity, God, it's so much easier nowadays for me just to see, oh, well, there is no concrete truth here. So whatever they feel on the matter, it just is what it is. My opinion is no better than theirs. Uh, This episode has gone on forever. So, have a good week. Be good. Be kinder for yourself than anybody else will because that's going to help you be kinder to other people in return. Have a nice week, everybody.